Welcome to Sin City. Get ready for in-depth chat on new releases, iconic films, and plenty more for you cinephiles. Only on CMRU.ca and Feel Loud Images. And now, to your host, Nick Manenses. Hello, everybody. You're listening to Sin City, live for CMRU.ca and Feel Loud Images. I am your host, Nick. And returning to today's episode is none other than my longtime guest and old friend from high school, Matt Sahariya. Good afternoon, Matt. How do you do today? I'm good. Thanks again for having me on the show. Awesome. Glad to have you back as always. You're probably our longest running guest, I must say, right next well, to Emmanuel. Yeah. Well. In the first episode till now. Exactly. So. <laughs> what a journey. Yeah. What a journey indeed. And today you've come at the right time because we will be discussing one of the most influential horror films of all time, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which we've both had the pleasure of re-watching last night in preparation. And I must say, this was way better than the first time I've watched it back when I was a teenager. Because first things first, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, when you hear the title, you may think, huh, well, this is going to be very bloody. But surprisingly, it's not that at all. It's surprisingly tame when it comes to the gore and blood. It's very unique, especially for one of the earlier slasher films. Yeah, that's a lot of people's... reaction to watching it again is um like i i read up a lot about it as well and that's a lot of people's reaction where it's a lot of implied horror so i was expecting to see like barely any blood but keeping that mindset there was more than i expected like um i would say that the first kill uh kurt uh there was that that scene was horrifying how he got what hit with a sledgehammer and then he's basically convulsing in a pool of blood like i can understand the reputation it's got and then also um franklin who just gets sliced up with a chainsaw and blood spraying everywhere um it's not like um it's not like a Sam Raimi film where it's gallons of blood, but it is just a lot. It is a lot of blood. But other than that, it's was relatively tame in the sense of buckets, but the violence they do show is um, disgusting, I would say. Of course, definitely, yeah. And at the same time, before we move on, also much like we've been doing since this show has been revived, we're gonna keep this structured. So first, I thought we should start with the story, which also includes the characters and scares, before capping it off with its impact on the horror genre as a whole. So to go on, yes, you're right, because yeah, the film. Notice how the violence as we mentioned in our halloween episode a few weeks ago it mostly happens off screen which really 
lets us fill in the gaps on the horror we just witnessed. To continue to your point about Franklin's death, it's all pitch black, but the screams of horror from Franklin and Sally's reaction to the death it's it's enough it's enough to unsettle the audience and really put in images that will be seared into our brain for a long time uh but i, I would also say it's a testament to the editing as well like the best example of that would be when pam gets put on the meat hook because what happens is you see leatherface drag her in you see the meat hook and then you cut to him lifting her up and then you cut again to her on the meat hook screaming. And then you also pan down to see a bucket underneath her to collect the blood. And the implication of that, that she is going to be slaughtered just like a cattle, is what people think of when they think of it with she's just spraying blood everywhere. And that was Kurt, actually, from when he was cutting him apart um yeah but it, like they do a really good job of editing it in a way to portray the violence without actually showing the meat hook going through the shoulder exactly yeah and on top of that Leatherface looks like our friend Leatherface has been sacrificing people to the entity long before it was cool also and at the same time, to really show how much it just because this film has a reputation it doesn't deserve. On top of the light gore, despite the title Chainsaw, as we all know, as you and I both know, only one victim gets killed by the chainsaw, and that is of course Franklin. Franklin's demise, basically. All Dead by Daylight fans will understand what we're saying, by the way. Yeah. Um, yeah, but also just going back to the, um, what you said about these images seared into your mind, that's, that's really how we open the film. Like we have this opening narration that basically says that this is a true story that actually happened for sure. Guys don't look into it. Um, which is partially true if you take it from the sense wherein it's inspired by true events. It's the same way that a movie like Fargo uses the same thing that says this is a true story. The names and places have been changed to protect the victims. But um, then we get the shots of the camera flashes of these mangled corpses that have been dug up in the cemetery and placed in grotesque ways. And the flash of the cameras and the sound of the, I don't know exactly what it is. I think it's the, um, it might be the, I don't know. I'm not a photographer. The bulb, the flash of, and the sound. Yeah. And that has been iconic with the, well, I know the remakes uh, also use that as part of the iconography of the film even though it may not make sense for the time period they're depicting, but that's that's another story for another time. But they do sear these horrors into your head as the credits roll. And that I, I think the imagery in it is 
what a lot of people is what people remember it for. There is a lot of grotesque things and after each watch you will notice something that you may have not seen before and a new horror to discover each with every each and every watch very true exactly yeah and also to continue with your your previous statement on the whole inspired by true events because the texas chainsaw massacre also had a pretty solid marketing campaign because this film was based to be on a on a true story as well and to those who are unfamiliar with this film and with the character of Leatherface, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or rather the character of Leatherface, is inspired by the real-life crimes of serial killer and body snatcher Ed Gein, the the plain the butcher of Plainview, in that you know both wear a mask made of flesh and live in a house where the furniture is decorated with human bones and skin. But contrary to popular belief, no, Ed Gein did not wield. A chainsaw and he also inspired other real life I mean fictional serial killers as well like Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs and Norman Bates from yeah, um, yeah from Psycho and to an extent um, Hannibal Lecter as well I just want to clear up some misconception misconceptions that with Ed Gein uh, now that you brought him up he only killed two people a lot of the body parts he got was from harvesting the from robbing graves and he would particularly rob graves of women that looked like his mother and that's sort of where the more psycho elements come into it because he was obsessed with his mother she um he had a pretty bad childhood her his mother instilled an idea of women are the root of all evil and um, they're the cause of the um, destruction of the world. And the reason why he w he's technically not a serial killer. Um, and a lot of um, Ed Gein like researchers uh, would say that because he only killed two people and uh, three is the um, what would be considered a serial killer. And a lot what the problem was that, there was a lot of people getting murdered and disappearing in the Plainsview area. Uh, Plainsview, Plainsfield, I think it is. Um, but that's just because it's the Midwest, and the Midwest, and that particular section of the Midwest was just rampant with crime and murder. And rather than solving these, they're like, "Oh, it must be Ed Gein here, this crazy, crazy lunatic." Um, but one of the more horrid aspects than his killing would be his macabre, macabre artwork that he did. Like he, um, he took a lot of inspirations from, uh, is, is, uh, is Ben Coach, the butcher of, I, uh, sorry, um, I'm blanking here, but. Basically, uh, it was um, stories of so, uh, Nazi concentration camp where this um, officer would make furniture out of human skin, like upholstery chairs, lamps, 
and this fascinated Gein, not for the Nazi ideals, but just the... Um, it's more of like an arts and crafts project, uh, morbid arts. And he... Then also the... Um, he also made a skin suit out of women's skin. And there, there is a pertaining theory that he did have gender dysmorphism, where he believed that to be, uh, yeah, a female. And um, it's, uh, yeah, and he wasn't that... It, his murders weren't fueled by a sadistic tendency or um, gluttony or like he, he never ate any of the bodies either, but um, it, it was basically the times he did murder. It was to get parts and it was, it was like making your way down to the local Michaels for him, it seems, but in a more bloody and disgusting way. Um, yeah. Uh, I think that's pretty much my Ed Gein rant. If you have any questions, I can. Oh no! Yeah, right. I first off, I had no idea about that. That he only killed two people. So, and to your point, yeah, you're right. Because you need to have three victims in order to be considered a serial killer or a spree killer, oh. even. Yeah. Um. The for serial killers, there is a you do a kill and then there's a cool cooldown period and do it again. Um, but you, you can be classified as a serial killer if you've only com committed one or two murders. But if you have signs that you have these sadistic tendencies, they can still classify you as a serial killer. If it's, um, motivated by like if the if you are motivated by motivated by sadistic tendencies it's like you catch you before you it's not like they wait for you to commit your third murder and then they like aha we got you you serial killer it's not like that it's more of if, if you show the tendencies to commit more acts of violence in these ways then they they, they can also classify you that way. So I have a question for you on that topic. So regarding if we tie it all together with the fictional aspect of Leatherface, and if we only take the first movie and just the first movie into account, would Leatherface be fit that criteria you mentioned about the killing and there's a cooldown, given that the murders in the original film, they all take place within the span of 24 hours? Uh, first off, it's... Um, it, it's a spree killing, if we're going with that sense, because he... Um, he kills... He, it's not... It's not... He... It, it's more... What am I trying to say here? Um, he... Um, he basically kills them because they're all there rather than a serial killer who would go out and prowl and hunt, who would basically look for a victim and then coax them into it. It's more, I would say, um, out of anything, Leatherface is more of a animal defending his home 
compared to uh, sadist, uh, serial sadist in the way of many serial killers. Very true. Exactly to your point, because that reminds me as well, because, yeah, you're right. Because, in fact, that's one thing that sets Leatherface apart from his good old pals, Freddy, Jason, and Michael, because he's not killing out of malice. He kills out of fear, like like you mentioned just now, Leatherface's behavior is like that of a, a rabid animal. He kills because he's scared of intruders whenever they come into his house, because if you look at it from Leatherface's perspective, it's a home invasion, like we're entering, trespassing into his house, essentially. Yeah, but um, there's a big difference. He could have just said, oh yes, you could have some of my gas and then wave you along. But another interesting thing to compare um, Jason, Freddy, Michael Myers and all that is it's not just the other face. There's a whole, we can, um, they're unnamed in this film, but in the sequels, they're either the Sawyers or the Slaughters, which I'm going to do Sawyers because Slaughters just sounds campy and I hate it. So, um, and it's, it's, it's a family affair, like... Um, the hitchhiker, for example, he was the one going up and messing up with all the graveyards and because Leatherface was still at home. Like in that sense, they're all, you could, you could draw parallels to all different aspects to Ed Gein, where Leatherface wears the skin suits, but the hitchhiker um, robs the graves. And then the cook is um, an interesting one, the gas station attendant, I should say, um, because he's, I would say, is the most sympathetic out of all of them. Because, yeah, because he's, he, he's the father of Leatherface and the Hitchhiker because he says, oh, your brother did this, your brother did that. Oh, look at what your brother did. So I, yeah, well, I drew the conclusion that he is either the father or some sort of uncle. He is not directly, he, he is not a sibling to Leatherface and the Hitchhiker. And he is older than them, but not as old as Grandpa, which we'll get to. But um, when he says, oh, I, I don't like killing, I haven't the stomach for it. Because in the process of the slaughterhouse, um, or the slaughter, he um, cooks the food. He doesn't kill the food. and um, But that doesn't say, oh, he's a, a example of the moral virtue. He's the angel among demons in this sense. Because he still allows everything to go on. He still cooks people and eats people. And um, it's, but comp like compared to all of them, he is the most level-headed of them all. But he still has this idea of putting family first and um, and keeping the family together. So. Exactly, yeah, and also, yeah, 
when back then when I first watched it and he said I can take no pleasure in killing it's something that you gotta do but that doesn't mean you have to like it yeah because at first I thought hmm, maybe he's not such a bad guy after all but then to your point it's more I say of a pragmatic way rather than actual sympathy and yeah compare and if you it reminds also this whole film basically feels like it not feels like it is the process of animals literally being lined up to a slaughterhouse with those animals being the gang of teenagers and a lot of significance is placed on cattle because my guess is that's how Leatherface or rather the Sawyer family see everyone else that is not part of their clan were basically just cattle pieces of meat about to be sacrificed. Well, if there there is and there isn't. I know um, watching a documentary about it um, and its cult status, they mentioned that it's somewhat of a black comedy where um, it's not overt, like they're making jokes and that, but there is some irony in it that's humorous i would say like the comparing them to cattle and i um watching it with the context this just this recent time i find it kind of funny with the whole astrology aspect how old saturn's in retrograde and old capricorns are ruled by saturn and how um that gets franklin all nervous and worried that um this and the it's it, it, if you keep it with that context and just say, oh, this whole thing is caused because Saturn's in retrograde. This relatively nonsensical astrological prediction, and everything bad happens to the people in the van is because of that. It's it's just funny. Oh, just because they were here because Saturn was in retrograde, and yeah, but. Um, and also uh, with the comical aspects, how um, they give Sa uh, to kill Sally, they give the hammer to Grandpa, who can barely hold the hammer. And when he does, it just is like a little tap. And then it's always oh, the best at killing. It takes someone's stroke, but he could barely even hold the hammer. But the whole dinner scene with Sally leads to a different element of it where um, it's not just um, they view them as cattle. It seems like they're missing something for their family. Because if you take that scene and keep in mind that Sally is the mother figure in that, because you have the father, you have the two kids, and you have grandpa. And yeah, because... It does if if they're just cattle to them, it doesn't make sense to have Sally at dinner. And um she, she is there for a reason, and that's that that's just how movies are. It's not just because, oh, we think it's gonna be scary. And I feel like part of the Sawyer's there's a longing in the Sawyer household. They want to bring the family back together. And the mother's either dead or ran off somewhere, because we do see Grandma, which is... Well, I presume Grandma upstairs with Grandpa in that one scene. But, um, 
it's it, it goes back to the Ed Gein's fascination of with his mother. He's trying to bring her back. He's trying to uh, be with her again, but um, uh, in the film, it's. I feel like because there's a reason why Sally was at dinner because they could have just treated her like Pam where they hook her up on a meat hook and drain her out. So all this Sally's presence at the dinner table, the reason why the Sawyers haven't killed her at that point anyway, is like some form of Stockholm syndrome, I'm guessing, kind of like how, you know, Kind of like the story is in a formerly twisted version of the story, you know, of uh, Peter Pan, you know, where it's, it's a more downplayed version of this, of course, but it's where they like bring Wendy, who is, you know, from the real world and bring her back to Neverland so she can be like a, a mother, a maternal figure to the lost boys, right? Like this symbol of nur nurturing and warmth is how I interpret it, because back then, I've always thought that, you know, because the Sawyers, knowing who they are, and the fact that they're a bunch of sadistic bastards, they might keep her just to, you know, just to torment her, you know, just toying with her before they they kill her. Otherwise, why would they have Grandpa Sawyer finish her, attempt to finish her off later in the well, climax? With, with that, I... Um... I think that's sort of the idea, but it's more of the archetypal mother, I would say. More more of an archetype than an actual person, because it's not like she's going to um, flip, flip a switch and eventually think all of this is okay. They murdered and ate her friends. But she's there as a representation of their mother. So whether it's... Um, whether it's them... Uh, what after what we if if the movie continued from the dinner scene and Sally didn't escape, it would probably end up being that they would just kill her because she was too much trouble, and then they would keep finding this mother figure. Because frankly, I don't think that the their form of sadism of watching them eat their friends before dinner or is so, sort of the mo of the sawyer family they're not really in it to cause suffering they're in it they're in it more as for the product rather than the process going back hmm wow that i never that was really a quite an out-of-the-box interpretation Matthew really because yeah if you think about it it it's almost like uh, it makes the Sawyer family in a way complex it reminds me a bit of the the dynamic not to stray off topic here of course since we're here to talk about the Chainsaw Massacre but it reminds me a bit of the Horga, you know, the the murderous cult from Midsommar, where we have a like a, almost a familial group of killers. They they may le live a very simple, idyllic life, but regardless, there's still a bunch of murderers, which I think makes them and the Sawyer family really, 
really complex horror villains, more than just a hack and slash type characters. Yeah, yeah. and also. I think I might need to do an episode on Midsummer. Oh mm. yeah, oh yeah, we hope. And, to. and maybe you can pack the Wicker Man in there too. So. Oh, done and done. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And wow. Um, Sorry, you go. All right. Um, so yeah, like, also to keep on hold with the whole story and characters, we are nearly halfway through this episode, and we still haven't talked more about the the main man himself, old Bubba Sawyer Leatherface. I suggest we do much like we did for our Halloween episode. Take the time to do like a bit of a um, psychological profile on this character. What do you say? Like. First off, yeah, he's a very unique type of character, really, because, you know, the fact that he's basically like a rabid animal who is just out to kill people who threaten his family. Because one scene, which I think is the most important scene in terms of Leatherface's character, is after he kills Jerry, you know, after he finds Pam's body in the freezer, he is sitting... Like slumping on his bed, like shaking his head, trying to keep it together. He sounds mortified. He looks just scared. He's scared that I guess what he's thinking is, who are these people? Why have they come here to my house? Do they want to hurt my family? He is like terrified. He takes no pleasure in it. And the fact that he keeps those squeals, like he keeps making pig-like squeals the guy is just scared he's just mortified i would say it's he's more of a child or an infant rather than an animal because it's you could take his squealing as an animalistic sound or it could be a baby babbling nonsense and with the he idea that he is scared of this he doesn't know what's going on he's just trying to do the best thing that he can is um sort of it he wants to he's doing it for the family even though that the family that he has isn't the best family as as we see yeah well but even towards him it's not like um it's a loving family it's not like despite all the odds they love each other in the end it's they're abusive to to each other they call him a like i don't know exactly what they do, but like a babbling idiot they um get pissed at him for chopping up their door and it's like let's um and they they, they talk down to him and even though the he's the biggest one out of all of them the strongest one out of all of them he's just a child in how he acts and he's the these words that they say hurt and it's the yeah he's i would say it's more childish and that um there's also a sense of that throughout the film with um, another scene to connect it to is with Grandpa when he's sucking the blood out of Sally's finger. He's just all giddy with glee with his arms and legs wobbling all over the place. And it's... Th- th- these aren't 
mature people. The like the gas station attendant is the most mature out of all of them, and he sort of keeps the family together. But even the uh, hitchhiker, he lives a like, carefree. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they're not gonna catch me. It's I. It's uh, do what I want. You could, you could realistically put it together in a age structure where it's um, Leatherface is youth or adolescence. Well, Grandpa would be like, um, despite being old, the way he acts in the film is infantile. So Grandpa's the yeah, yeah, and they basically covered him in, in prosthetics which is really good old maiden old man makeup right um then you get the child and the adolescent in Leatherface, and then you get the hitchhiker which is sort of the teenager even though he's i would i think he's younger than Leatherface, but he is a middle child okay um and then you got the gas station attendant who's the adult figure in this household and I, I guess you could have Grandma Skeleton as old age, but she doesn't do anything. She she is just a skeleton. Right. Yeah. And yeah, to your point also, what really makes Leatherface such a terrifying figure is not the fact that he is this masked maniac who is chasing at you with a chainsaw, because if we connect more Ed Gein parallels to the character of Leatherface. Leatherface's behavior is like that of Stockholm Syndrome-esque also, because you know his family, they, they mistreat him, they abuse him, but regardless of how they treat him, he still remains loyal, because at the end of the day, they're his family, they're the only ones he knows, and if if there's any indication, I bet they told him his entire life that outsiders are a threat, that the only thing that matters is family. Anyone that's not family is an enemy. Yeah, and that is the truest thing about Leatherface's character to Ed Gein, is, was Ed's devotion to his mother. It carried him to the end. And um, even, like... It more so than Leatherface, because for the most, Ed Gein did wear face uh, masks made out of faces, but it was mainly the suit. He said, yeah, he did it some of the time. And it's not like Leatherface where um, he always wore it. It was part of his identity is this masked idea. And... Um, it's, um, it's, it, it is the devotion to family that, in the end, uh, is the greatest connection to Ed Gein that the movie has. Well, that and then the, the bone furniture is also a pretty strong one. <laughs> Very true, yeah. And yeah. on top of that, too, with with more connection to other faces character of course we are this this doesn't justify but it explains the character they're both different things of course but i'm not saying and you will we will never hear you will never hear us say we should empathize with some crazed cannibal that wears and eats people but 
deep down inside, Leatherface, he's just as terrified as we are, as he's just as terrified as the people that he chases and carves down like they're barnyard animals, line up to the slaughterhouse. And to further connect to with the importance of the masks too. Notice how three times in the film we see Leatherface in three different outfits. There's one with the, the the iconic look with the apron and the business suit, then the one where he dresses like an old lady, and then the last one where he's at the dinner table wearing like a tuxedo almost, because Toby Hooper and Gunnar Hansen, the actor who plays Leatherface, said that each mask represents a different personality. The old lady, he is all preparing dinner. Then the business suit, he's getting ready for dinner. He's all happy because Leatherface wears these masks because he doesn't know how to express himself. Each mask is dependent on how he's feeling at the moment. They're, they're a persona that he embodies rather than um being rather than being himself he would he fills the need for personality with these different people these different forms that he takes up and like i don't want to say talk about split personality or any bipolar disorder i'm not qualified to comment on that but um it is a way to physically represent the uh mental um i it is physically a physical way to represent a change in personality where he is not he he is a blank canvas for the mask to express upon him. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And very true. And also, um, I'm kind of blanking on here. But another the thing also about um, Leatherface as well is another thing that makes him unique from the other slashers is that unlike Freddy, Jason, or Michael, which keep in mind since this film came out four years before Halloween, Leatherface is doesn't possess any supernatural qualities or attributes. He's just a human being, a just a normal a normal mortal made of flesh and blood, which can be seen how he literally got hurt when he slipped on his and got his leg cut off with his own chainsaw because he he he, he got hurt and he's even screaming in pain because I feel that's more. I'm not saying that the supernatural killer isn't scary, but sometimes it can get a bit too tiring because what people, what really makes it scary is the element of realism. We Leatherface is a killer who is not Jason or Michael, but he can still get hurt, but he still has the, the cunning, the determination to kill you no matter how many times you hurt him and no matter what you throw at him in the end. Yeah, I know. The way they actually did that um, was they had, um, they basically flipped the chain on the saw so it wouldn't cut, 
and they had a metal plate underneath his leg and some pig meat. And when they did it, the um, it would go against the metal plate, and then the pig meat would get cut up. And that that's how they did it safely. But doing it that way, like basically superheated the um, metal plate on his leg, and it just it burnt. It well got hot and. So that's how they actually did that stunt in the scene. But yeah, there is a human element to this. And I would say a good film to compare it to would be Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes. Because that is also about a family of cannibals. Um, But in... The Hills Have Eyes, the which I think came out three years after. And it's based on the Bean Clan, I think it is, from... It's Scottish folklore um, about this family of cannibals that would rob, would rob, kidnap and rob travelers on the road and kept them, which there isn't a lot of evidence to it. There's... I think they may have connected one or two murders to similar events, but there's no evidence of, like, this hoard of gold that the Bean Clan had, and it was this incestuous family of, like, four generations. Um, A lot of people think that that was actually Scottish, like, English propaganda for Scottish people, how they're these murderous, incestuous monsters that would eat and rob people on the road so um but in that film it's the direct the contrast to um them the normalcy of a basically a suburban family because it's these two families pitted against each other and in the end the normal family has to go to savage tendencies to escape that's and that has a more clear through line of the human element between the films um but in the texas chainsaw massacre it just so shows the despicable how despicable humanity can be the low the lowest depth of um depravity i would say agreed yeah and that's that what you just said that i think is the key to what makes the Texas Chainsaw Massacre really scary. It's not the over-the-top gore or any uh, jump scares, but rather the that humanity is can be depraved, which is evident during the third act with the whole dinner table. Because when people, f- I bet you anything, when people hear about this movie, they'd think buckets of blood and gore, but it's surprisingly not that. It's more about the human depravity, knowing that innocent people, that these people can, our go something horrible is about to take place and that we they are just powerless to do anything about it at the same time and which reminds me also there is i've heard some comments that people say the characters not the foyer family and not leatherface the main characters the teenagers are very bland and not interesting but personally i don't have a problem with that in fact i can i excuse it because 
yes, the characters, they don't really stand out, but that's okay because this is just my opinion. I feel that because there's horrible things about to take place with cannibals and a chainsaw wielding killer that knowing about these characters personalities and their backstories would be irrelevant in the face of survival it's also that this is an amateur production is this is this toby hooper's first film or i i believe it is but i correct me if i'm wrong but it's it wasn't ever meant to be this um, legendary film that it's in. I think it's in the National Film Board. It's in some sort of library. Um, just because, um, for one, how influential it is, and how it was never meant to be that. It was meant to be this drive-in late-night horror flick that you would catch on a in a drive-in uh while you most likely brought a date i don't know i never do that um but uh so you have to keep that in mind it's also like night of the living dead where it was never meant to be this legendary film it was just meant to be a cheap horror film to get people started or because they wanted to make a horror film they never went they, they they never thought it would achieve this cult status but they do so much in the film like the editing the score the even the dialogue it's uh, for the most part you, you can and the wardrobe you can remember what every character looks like or something about the character and um i think for the one of the characters who gets the most complaints is franklin because he's this whiny ass but and if you view it as that he's on this road trip but then and he's in the wheelchair and they call him invalid i think in the opening narration which i feel is is a bit mean honestly um but they leave him behind when they go explore the house they he it's not having a good day to begin with he fell down a hill while pissing and should put his brakes on honestly that's his fault um no um but he the we there's a reason why he's all whiny it's not because they wanted this character to be an ass so they wrote him as an ass putting him in the wheelchair and making him disadvantaged to these other characters and making making him they basically give him a reason to be this whiny ass i'm not saying just because you have have a disability justifies you to be a bad person but from what we see in this movie and how he's treated i would be in a bad mood too if my friends just forgot about me and um they're not treating me as an equal they're treating me as a lesser in that sense as a, a liability yeah as well and in a way sally while while she clearly we clearly loves her brother in a way she feels 
like he is too much of a burden to her and to her friends because he keeps like he's like the load to them the millstone like slowing them down in a way yeah and franklin yeah i think he's the one character that really stands out above the rest given that he has a more clear defined personality but again again my this is not a criticism of course this is more just stating the facts because the characters and lack of characterization for the most part that i can completely excuse given how the time it was to take place and then how it helps to enhance the story because texas chainsaw massacre it's not really a character driven yeah. story and it's more a plot driven story point, uh, set driven story the setting does so much for the film because placing it in this remote texas house it basically and even the gas station and everything leading up to it is um drives the story and justifies the character how the characters act because it's not like they could have turned back at any point once they got into it and even the beginning of the film they go to see if their grandfather's grave was dug up in part of the grave robbery so that's places them in texas into the area where these grave robbings occurred and then the gas station establishes that there's no gas here and they're it's almost like descending into hell how there's each it's it's not a one-to-one parallel with dante's inferno but how there's different levels there's the outside which is like purgatory filled with flies and corpses which and then you go as you go deeper into it the more stuck you become it's like um i think the gordian is it the gordian knot um it's a mytho- mythological knot that um is a labyrinth to that ties all over itself a whole bunch and if you try to entangle it you're only going to make it worse and then alexander the great comes along and just cuts the knot in half and he gets the prize which is a chariot but it is a gordian um how the characters as the characters keep going they're tightening themselves up in this knot and they got get to a point where there's nothing they can do there's because they're going to be found eventually i guess they could have just waited at the car but um uh that's not the logical thing for human beings to do it is oh let's see if there's anyone that could lend us some gas or let's go swimming while we wait or all of this um but yeah the yeah i was gonna just mention that i feel like a lot of the sets and props are incredible even though that they're disgusting and deprived it's it they are works of art in a sense how how creative they are like um my during the dinner scene there are two lamps framing the scene there's one where it's this grotesque um 
display of like a human rib cage and a skull up top and then there's a seemingly normal lamp and i was like oh that's funny it's just a lamp but then when you look at it the stand is made out of like rib bones and other bones and it's like this is this is the detail that that makes this movie legendary because it's not like it's um a just a um lamp that they stuck bones onto it is a full lamp made out of lamp post made out of bones and then there's the infamous couch which that is just bones strapped to a couch but um and then the whole the the whole chicken room as it was called it brings an effect of disgust because how it is shot when Pam runs into it um, and ju it just basically quick zooms to all the horrors in the room. I feel that's not what Pam saw because I feel like that's what they saw when they were investigating it afterwards. All these things. She may have saw seen one or two things and that was that is what made her sick. But how they focus on every single aspect of the room sort of it's more look at all these horrors rather than this is what the character sees right yeah that and that, to your point yeah i agree 100 percent. the the production design the cinematography is another thing that often gets overlooked in the texas chainsaw massacre but it really helped add a lot to the story first off with the production design and the cinematography like let's take a moment to appreciate how beautifully made this film is it's more of an art house film if you come to think about it and that's another thing that i feel also helps to enhance the the scariness in the film it's the authenticity because yes it came out in 1974 but the film looks like the very the color palette, the aesthetic, it's grimy. It feels like we're watching a documentary rather than just a film film. It even looks like almost like a snuff film, which really adds to the realistic element of the film. Like we are being pulled into the madhouse rather than witnessing it from the comfort of our seats. It's genius, really. In today's time of... Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I, you also got to think that's sort of what they were going for with the narration at the beginning, going back to that, saying this is a true story and this tragedy that occurred with Sally and Franklin and that it, it makes it real. And certainly if you're a young kid watching it without any context, you would believe this is real. It's... I know I saw it compared to, it was sort of like the Slender Man of its days, where, well, Slender Man's a bit old now, but how it's this urban legend that there's this family of cannibals in the middle of Texas. It's like, if you're a kid and you don't know any better, you do believe that. You do believe that the Sawyer family is real and they're out there and it's because we we don't we never get a conclusion to what happens at the film it isn't well it's not even implied that they do invest it, it, it's ambiguous because we do know about it 
because of the narration going back saying this is what happened. And there is an investigation with the uh, photos, but it's it's not it's not like we see, um, which I think is at the beginning of the second film. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if you've seen it, but okay. Well, I think it's somewhat of a spoiler, but I think like the beginning of the second film is um, the cops show up to the Sawyer household and there's like a shootout and um or I mean, no i think is either that or one of the remakes it's something like that and that is what i wouldn't want to see in that's not that's not what i would have wanted to see at the end of this movie i didn't want to see them uh get arrested they lose part of their mystique part of their terror if you see them get arrested right yeah i would have taken away from the whole experience as well and also with the aesthetic and the documentary style they were going for here in today's evolving world of technology and film I don't think that same aesthetic could also be replicated in today's time because you know how the cameras now are more squeaky clean and with advanced lenses too. If That's why many of the sequels, in particular the remake, failed to capture that element of realism that was in the original film by Toby Hooper as well. Yeah, but... Nothing says that you need to film on digital. Like, if you're really committed to the art and the craft and you want to get the same effect of it, you it's going to be probably more expensive for sure. Um, but depending on how much, if you're getting the camera yourself. But um, you can get like a eight, I don't know, 16 millimeters, 64. I don't, I don't know. I'm not a don't know i think 16 millimeters one and film it yourself or because i know um for i think it's sinister uh they have a whole sequence of home movies filled on a i think it's eight millimeter for that one um and that adds an effect to of like you were saying of realism to those scenes and if you really committed to make a texas chainsaw massacre like film you can't nothing stopping you from doing that and you could try your best to put on your nice and glossiest filter or nice and grittiest filter but there there is something to filming on the actual thing that um that's a testament to that right exactly and also for a uh, behind the scenes thing which i always like to bring up whenever we're talking about texas chainsaw the for the dinner scene which i'm sure you're guessed by now but the dinner scene was probably not just the most horrific but also the most difficult part to film for the entire film because during the filming for that scene they filmed in mid-july in texas the weather was very hot almost like a heat wave and 
the, the food that they were using for props, the meat, the sausages, it spoiled quickly since they covered all the windows and they used actual film lights on the food, which was starting to rot and created this awful smell that started to get into the actors and actresses nerves too. And some of them almost got sick. And they filmed this entire scene in 24 hours also, making for an excruciating experience. And the actor who played the, the cook, uh, the gas station attendant, who was a veteran from the... Um, a World War II veteran said this was the most stressful thing for him since going on the war. Yeah. It's not just the dinner scene, it's anything in the house. Because it's not... Um, one of the best things to I from this movie that I hear is that um, at the time real bones were cheaper than fake bones, so for the most part, I think for like the skulls and that, they might have um, done something different. But like all like the femurs and that, they were actual animal bones, and it's not like they're innate. They they do. Sp- just start to smell and then the chicken shit everywhere from the chicken room smelled it it was just a the whole house was a smelly horrible mess so it's um so that's one thing i wouldn't want smell a vision for i tell you (laughs) um but fun fact the house the sawyer house um, now is a restaurant, so in Texas. So if you ever want to, I don't know, have some barbecue in the Sawyer House, um, yeah, I, I don't know if it's, I don't. The, I saw it in a documentary about it. So. I did not know that. Wow. Yeah, we definitely have to give it a try if we are humanitarians, and yeah, we're in Texas more so. <laughs> yeah, and. Oh, and also, like, while we've talked mostly about the horror elements of this film, one thing I feel gets usually overlooked would have to be Marilyn Burns as the proto-final girl, uh, Sally Hardesty, because her performance was just perfect, in my opinion. I She really sells the horror that she's going through, especially during that whole dinner scene where she starts screaming and is in pain it really sells just how terrifying leatherface and his family are and by the time she is at the back of the truck this doesn't feel like a happy ending or a eureka moment where yay she got away from the killers but like she's laughing like an insane laughter she might have gotten away but it really sends the implications that she will be left with a lot of mental scars for the rest of her life. This is like the perfect bittersweet ending. Yeah. And that's, um, again, that's foreshadowed in the opening narration. Going back to that again, that's like they'll see horrors that they will could never have imagined and it will last with them till the rest of their days or... Um, uh, but a thing that's really interesting about it is there's not really a blanket moral to the, or a reason for, um, the Sawyer family. It's a, 
it's a slaughter of opportunity, I would say. Where whereas with other slashers, they're motivated by, well, barring Michael Myers, because we don't know what's going on in that, the little head of his. Um, but like with Jason and Friday the Thirteenth and Pamela Voorhees, it's they they have a moral message. They're like they hate teenagers. They hate sex. It killed her son and him, I guess. Uh, if you look at it that way, and then Freddy, he's there to inspire fear, to basically grow more powerful and continue his killing spree. And in the Sawyers, there's it's not like the characters can learn anything from this. It's not like um, it, they brought this upon themselves. They they did it just by bad navigation, and. Well, picking up a hitchhiker, which if a guy, if a guy looks like that, I know people are gonna get mad at me for saying if a hitchhiker looks like a lunatic, don't pick him up. I know controversial statement of the year, but um, there's just some people you don't pick up, and um, yeah. Yeah, and that was also, yeah, that was back before hitchhiking was illegal because in today's time, hitchhiking is strictly prohibited in some areas. In, in some areas, if I hear some, I believe something about don't pick up hitchhikers. Don't know if that's either a law or just. Um, I think it's common sense. But, right, yeah, because you uh, don't know. People, you don't know. Nine out of ten times. It's, oh, sorry, sorry, you go. Yeah, people need to get to places, so. Right. True. Yeah. Though nine out of ten times it could end up worse. Who knows what if they have a gun or they want something, they want to rob you or kill you. Yeah. So we all have to be stay vigilant at the same time. That's what I'm saying. Mm hmm. Yeah. But, well, because um, a lot of that, that, that's how a lot of serial killers operated was they picked up hitchhikers and murdered them they took them to a remote place and murdered them so it's so that that's part of the common sense aspect of uh well hitchhiking in one isn't a good idea but because you don't know who's going to pick you up but also picking up hitchhikers is you don't know who's you're you're picking up as well and as well as serial killers operating by picking up hitchhikers, the reverse is also true as they can take advantage of the, they prey on the innocent, the kindness of others and when their guard is down. Yeah, sometimes, yes, like this plays on a very real life element of the whole hitchhiker element from Texas Chainsaw Massacre because yes, the Sawyer family don't exist, but at the same time, there are other people who will hurt other, other innocent people and will take advantage of any careless mistake just to hurt that person more uncommon for it to be the um, ladder of hitchhikers being serial killers because a lot of uh, motivations behind the crime is this power aspect and being a hitchhiker innately puts you in this uh, spot of vulnerability where you're the person going into their car Whereas they're going into your car. You are in control of the situation. Right. 
Yes. And mm, what else? Oh, at the same time as well. In I believe you know that this film, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, was banned in the UK and in several other states in the US. Others allowed it to be in theaters as long as it didn't have the word chainsaw in the title as well. Because people just, this film was really, really misunderstood. At the time of its release, it received controversial and negative reviews, but much like many classic horror films, it became vindicated by history. It received more positive reviews and now is considered to be one of the all-time greats and one of the ones that really, like, kick-started, not popularized, but kick-started the whole slasher genre. And this was four years before Halloween. Because mm-hmm. um, it's not really a slasher film, but it does have this iconic killer angle to it. And what I would say, I would say that the bannings did more for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre than a wide release would ever do, because it it became this legendary item that um, that had a sort of mystique around it. This um, oh, it's it, it's the idea of basically rebel the the basic idea of rebellion of oh, um, they don't want me to watch this, so it must be cool, sort of thing. It's, um, that, that's a problem with, like, banning books and that in school, is that if you tell someone they can't do something, they're going to want to do it more. And making uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre this sort of underground um, film that has to be passed around and... Uh, you could get in trouble if you get caught in it in like the UK. It it makes this it elevates it it elevates the legend of this film to a greater status than it, it becomes more than just a movie. It becomes an experience. You're partaking in this sacred rite that only a, a few only a handful of people get to experience because it is not allowed by the people who make the who don't think it should be allowed and now nowadays you can probably find it wherever i know the first time i watched it i i downloaded it and watched it on a bus on my phone so it's like um it was quite an experience because i was going through the edmontonoa calgary conway and you see all these farmhouses and it's like any one of these could be a <laughs> texas well an, an alberta massacre house yes i and i agree with your point as well because yeah banning something it'll only encourage more people to want to watch it the the irony i know right because on top of that too the texas chainsaw massacre one way one of many ways it influenced the genre as well is it introduced us all like these different cliches no not cliches more like archetypes from the slasher genre which is a big hulking mass killer carrying some kind of sharp weapon and then there's of course the final girl and speaking of tropes and cliches 
Notice how the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, this was before the whole rules. You know how you die if you have sex or if you drink because none of the characters in the film ha drink or ha engage in any sexual intercourse. Like they, there are couples, you know, with Pam and Kirk and Sally and Jerry, but they... They don't have any, we don't see them engage in any kind of, you know, sexual escapades. It's more like wrong place at the wrong time, I'd say. Yeah, I do think Kurt, though, um, he did, he, he might have just been a cigarette, but it could have also been a joint, a marijuana cigarette, a roach, a... Yeah, but it's, it's, it, that shouldn't matter, it's the it is the wrong place at the wrong time sort of thing because there's no vindication in the their killing they, they don't get a weird karmic justice for from indulging in sin right yeah it really also highlights what you mentioned before the element of human depravity really just yeah and also another way because the 70s which personally i think was the best decade for horror which was a whole decade of experimentation also showed how much like we discussed for our halloween episode how we can make so much on so little because texas chainsaw massacre was shot on a very very low budget a hundred forty thousand dollars actually and it didn't need some big studio attached to it toby hooper all he just needed was one camera a couple of friends and a car to head to texas and the result he created one of the all-time greatest and most influential horror films ever made mm -hmm. i know yeah it's it's a testament to independent filmmaking i would hold this and evil dead in th that regard how it's the first one the, uh sam raimi just because it's um it's just a couple of friends making a movie because they want to make a movie, not because they want to be big Hollywood stars or that. And they and they get unfound. They they, they get on. I don't. They, they they they're successful when they didn't expect to be, and they created these incredible works of art that are still talked about talked about to the to, to to this day and it still is as of right now as well and also yeah and it's all about the art really and toby hooper he was very young he was like 30 years old when he directed the texas chainsaw massacre and if all of you really love this film, I suggest you check out his other film of his, which I haven't seen just yet, but I know you have, Matt, and that's, of course, Poltergeist. Also, I'm really glad we got to discuss this episode, this film, too, because a lot of people, well, they're right, yes, Halloween did popularize the slasher genre, it indeed, but without the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, none of these other slasher films that we all know and love, from Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, and Scream would exist if it wasn't for the star power magic that is 
the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and none of the sequels and remakes managed to capture that same feeling of dread, the same cultural impact the original was able to do. And I think Toby Hooper can call this his best outing yet, really. May he rest in peace as well. And with all that said as well, what do you think was the uh, scariest moment from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I would say it is when he, Leatherface, kills Kurt. No, Kurt, not Kurt, what is it? Um, because it's unexpected. Because we see there has been nothing to indicate. It's not a jump scare in the sense that it's out of nowhere. Because um, when you go into the red room with all the animal antlers on it, you're bound to see something. But the like I was saying, the hit on the head and then you just see him convulsing in his own blood. And then you hear the... I don't know. I think it's after he takes Pam is when he does the iconic metal door slam. That was before Pam, so yeah, I would say that because it, it's an intro, it's the introduction to Leatherface, this terrifying figure, just brutally murdering this character who was just looking for some gas, and it does a good job of introducing him to the audience. Right. That is actually what I thought was also the scariest scene. Really good choice, too. And on a, for an added bonus, notice how there is absolutely no music in this scene, just more the sound design, with the hammer cracking through his skull and those really disturbing pig-like squeals Leatherface keeps making. It's really terrifying. And I also, like you mentioned, a really great way to introduce us to the main villain of the story. Well, main villain is a bit of a stretch, I'd say, because Leatherface, the Foyer family would be considered all the big bads, but Leatherface, he is what I think, I feel he, he is the one member of the family that, the one that drives most of the plot forward. Yeah. And... With all that said, that is all the time we have left for today's episode. Thank you, Matt, for coming in today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Glad to have you back. And next week, we'll be discussing yet another slasher film, and that is, of course, Halloween. No, not the original, not the 2007 remake, but the 2018 sequel. And until then, this has been Sin City. Live for CMRU.ca and Feel Out Images. I'm Nick Manessis. See you next week, same time as always, here on Sin City.